Welcome everyone to the inaugural episode of The Citizen's Guide. I'm Connor Lambert. Uh, I'm Pierce Rose. Welcome everyone. We are so excited for this. Um, Connor, before we start, I want you to tell us a little bit about what the past few days have been for you. You have an exciting announcement for everyone listening. Yes, I pulled a petition on Wednesday to run for Carrieville Alderman this, this November. Yeah, that is so exciting. Um, and you're running for an open seat, so there's an no open incumbent. Seat, no incumbent. And previously, engagement in local Carrieville elections has been very low. So I'm hoping for a, not saying easy race, but just a gradual experience. Yeah, I am, I am so excited for that. And I think it's just a, gr- a great thing to do because all politics is local and there's nothing more local than an alderman race. And for anyone who doesn't know what an alderman is, would you like to explain to them just a quick summary of what you would be doing if you're elected? So like Carrieville Alderman is the board, the executive body of Carrieville is the board of mayor and alderman. So they just do like what a city council might do. Same sort of just like basic, get the town running, ordinances, very local. Um, yeah. That's great. And That's great. For local politics, you're also involved up in Henry County. I am. So this summer I have been working on a campaign for a candidate who is running to be the chancellor for Tennessee's 24th Judicial District, which is five counties. It's Henry County, Benton County, Carroll County, Decatur County, and Hardin County. Um, And a chancellor is a judge who uh, deals with a lot of like civil court issues. So adoptions, custody cases, divorces, boundary disputes. It's a really broad range of things, but the campaign has been really interesting. Um, Campaigning in the time of COVID is really different than anything I think anyone's experienced in the past. So just trying to work past those issues has been difficult but exciting. And election day is a week from yesterday on August 6th. So we're really excited. Um, I think we're all feeling really confident going into the last week of the campaign and really feel like we've left it all on the table and, you know, won't have any regrets when the votes are counted. Um, but yeah, that's so awesome. We've both been doing some exciting stuff this summer. And just a shout out to everyone else. Make sure you're registered to vote and make sure your information's up to date. And if you need to apply for an absentee ballot early. Yeah, exactly. In general. Yeah. So, uh, and then I just want to talk a little bit about why we thought this podcast was a good idea and maybe why our voices should be listened to. Um, we're both college students and you know, Connor, ever since we've met, you know, we've had classes together, whatever, but we've always both been really interested in politics and really interested in talking about politics and maybe helping our friends who don't like politics so much better understand why it's important and why it's not this far off issue that doesn't affect them, but maybe why politics uh, really does affect your daily life. And yeah, so just giving people more information and more uh, opinions to hear, stuff like that. Um, for this episode, I just want to hit on what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be laying the groundwork for the state of the 2020 election, upcoming COVID-19 related legislation in Congress, and then we're going to hit lightly on the Portland um, federal action there, and then we're going to end with our discussion on Vice President Biden's VP picks. 
So, do you want to start with, let's start with the presidential race. Yeah. So, if you haven't heard, there is a presidential race happening in November this year. The candidates are Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And there's things aren't looking, looking great for the incumbent this year, are they? No, they're not. And we're about 100 days out, which means we're just kind of getting into the part where it gets really serious. Um, I have it that Joe Biden is leading by an average of 8.4 points in polling. That's from Real Clear Politics. And what they do is um, aggregate together a lot of different polling data and weight them based on the quality of the poll. So that's a that's a really good measure of the race right now. Um, one thing I do want to kind of give a caveat is that at this point in 2016, uh, some polls had Hillary Clinton leading by as many as 15 points. And again, another caveat, that's a national poll, and she did end up winning nationally by about three points. So those polls were correct. Uh, to an extent, it was the state polls that maybe didn't give us the result that you and I would have liked. Um, but yeah, it, yeah. so you tell, tell me why you think uh, Donald Trump might not be so happy right now. Just in general, like the Gallup released a poll on July 30th that said 56% of Americans disapprove of him, just in general. And that's not what you want 100 days out from an election. And even then, a Quinnipiac poll broke down that by large margins, um, Vice President Biden was leading Trump on handling of a crisis, handling health care, responding to the coronavirus, and addressing racial inequality. So like vast, just clear indications that the American people think Joe Biden would do a better job as president. Right. It's, I would say it's generally not a good thing when the majority of the public thinks the country is headed in the wrong direction and you're the person in charge of the country. You know, it might be a it's, wrong indicator. Yeah, that's right. Um, one thing that's been interesting to me in kind of comparing Joe Biden's candidacy to Hillary Clinton's candidacy is Joe Biden's performance among white voters. Um, he seems to be doing about uh, like 10 points better in some of the battleground states. Um, and, you know, he doesn't have to win uh, a bunch of states to become president. Joe Biden just needs to keep what Hillary Clinton won and win uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, which were all decided by uh, collectively fewer than 100,000 votes four years ago. So it, it's not, it doesn't take this Herculean effort for Joe Biden to become president. He just has to, to really just scrape by in a few states. Um, but it looks like he might do more than scrape by. Um, states like Texas, Georgia, Florida, places like that seem to really be in play, which I know is exciting for Joe Biden supporters, but probably not so exciting for Donald Trump supporters. And even if they're not super competitive this cycle, just the fact that people are talking about them as being competitive puts more pressure on Republicans to spend more money in those states where they wouldn't have to 2016, 2012, previous years, they wouldn't have to spend any money in Georgia and Texas to campaign, really. Absolutely. And I think it has a big effect on down-ballot down races, which we'll talk about later. Um, but it, it's a bad sign when the GOP is spending money in Texas defending John Cornyn's seat and the, you know, the presidential race instead of, you know, 
being on the, the airwaves in Michigan, where they seem to have stopped airing television ads in, in Michigan, it's really, really hard to imagine Donald Trump being reelected without winning Michigan. That's, I, I mean, it's, it's statistically possible and based on the Electoral College, very possible, but politically seems unlikely that voters in Michigan would vote for Joe Biden and then voters in other similar states would then vote for Donald Trump. Um, yeah. I think it's also important to look at, you said airing TV ads, also look at how much money the campaigns have raised individually. I know Joe, Bi Joe Biden has raised less money than Trump as a total, but in June he had more individual contributions than Donald Trump, which I think is a strong indicator of grassroots support and just more people becoming involved in electing Joe Biden. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I actually think it's interesting to point out that like, yes, Donald Trump and the RNC have raised a ton more money than Joe Biden, but Joe Biden was able to win the primary by spending like $1 for every $10 that his opponents spent. And so I think it's maybe a strength of Joe Biden's to, because he's been in politics so long, people know him, he's a known value. And, you know, maybe he's not going to have to raise and spend the kind of money that candidates typically have to raise and spend in order to win this race. I can see, you know, he's, he's been doing better this summer, but, but Donald Trump's been on, he's been on his reelection campaign for four years now, and he's still drowning in the polls. I don't, I mean, this might be a problem that there's not enough money in the world that can fix it. It might, I mean, I don't know. That's just... Hard to hard to look at those numbers and think that that if Trump raises you know two billion more dollars, the polls are going to get any better for him. And just I know it's hard to piece together a coherent election strategy for the Donald Trump campaign, but it seems like he's just not doing anything in his political best interest. When you look at the numbers, the Quinnipiac poll numbers, and see that you're not doing the people are not perceiving that you're doing the right thing on any issue. Maybe you stop complaining about how no one likes you and start putting people who do who they do like, like Dr. Fauci, up on the stage, giving reassurance to the American people. Yeah. It just blows my mind that that's a simple a simple solution to just boost his numbers and do better. Like <laughs> I want him to do better. Like I need him to do better. So we could have gone to college this fall, but he didn't. So yeah. mind boggling. I, I totally agree, of course. And I don't want to spend just the whole segment dissing the Trump campaign, but you did see recently he fired his campaign manager, or I guess rather reassigned him. I think Brad Parscale has been moved to the digital team of the Trump campaign and they've brought the in Star too. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so you've seen a shake up there, but you know, still the polls haven't moved since June. And I don't know what it, I mean, it's hard, again, hard for me to look at what we have left. The big events we have left are Joe Biden announcing his vice presidential candidate, which will be coming very soon. You have the Democratic National Convention, which just is going to be what it is. It'll be online. And you'll have the Republican National Convention, which I think he has floated the idea of accepting the nomination at the White House, um, which to me is, is a bad idea for the office of the president. Um, I think there needs to be some 
kind of separation there, but I'm sure he'll do it if he likes the idea or if Tucker Carlson mentions it enough on Fox. Um, so you just don't have that many big events left that are, are pole shifting to me. Um, I don't know what, I mean, do you think there's anything left on the calendar that could really shake it up? And I'm not, again, I am not saying that Joe Biden has this in the bag. I don't want to make a prediction at all. I'm just, you know, with the data we have now, we can only do so much, but do you think there's anything upcoming that could, that could change things? I think something that he might do, might do, and I say this knowing it's unlikely, but also saying it, that there's not a 0% chance of it not happening, that he ditches Mike Pence on the ticket. Okay, I was gonna ask you that. I had it in my notes to ask you if you thought that, because I know you had floated that idea in the past, and I, I'm on the side of that he won't do that, that it's kind of too late, but I, I you know, never I say think never in Trump world. I think it looked more likely at the beginning of the crisis when he put Pence in charge of the task force. And I thought that would have been a good excuse for him to blame his failure of leadership on Mike Pence and say, we need a new vice president. And I don't know how much vice Pence brings to his electoral path. Like, right. No, I don't think anyone's voting for Mike Pence anymore. Interesting. If, and we're going to move on here in a minute, but um, yeah. if, okay, we wake up tomorrow, Trump says Pence is off the ticket. Give me one name of who you think would be on the ticket. Nikki Haley, yeah. I think, or oh, I'm blanking on the name, the governor of South Dakota or North Dakota. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I can't remember her name either. Um, but yes, I know who you're talking about. I think both of those names would be very interesting for the ticket. And yeah, so that I think that's all we're going to talk about the presidential race. So now I want to move to the battle for the United States Senate, um, which of course is this November as well, alongside the presidential races. Um, just some background, Democrats need a net of three seats to take control of the Senate if Joe Biden wins and four if he loses. So just for our listeners, if Democrats net three seats and Joe Biden wins, whoever he picks as his vice president would be the tiebreaker in cases of 50-50 votes in the Senate. Um, and that's assuming that some of our moderate senators like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema um, continue supporting the agenda and don't jump ship on us. Uh, but the race for the Senate has gotten really, really tight in the last few months. I think a year ago, Republicans were still very confident that they would control the Senate, even if Joe Biden was elected. Um, but now it's looking like there are competitive races in the following states, and it's a long list. Montana, Colorado, Arizona, Kansas, Iowa, Alabama, North Carolina, Maine, and two races in Georgia that are competitive. So that is a, a really long list of states a lot of which are not democratic states by any stretch. Um, so, so what are you thinking about the Senate? Well, I just think, again, it's mind boggling that we're at this point in the election where all these states are competitive in a body like the Senate that favors Republican, Republican voters, rural, less densely populated. Like the fact that Montana is competitive this year, just, a sign of the times, I think. But I've been looking at very closely the Alabama race and the Arizona race. And I'm very excited because Doug Jones 
has my heart not to be biased. But just the fact that he was able to win in 2017 against Roy Moore, which thank God he did because Roy Moore shouldn't have been nominated. But now he's running against Tommy Tuberville, an Auburn football coach. And I just – Tommy Tuberville is a candidate that has no governing experience, which isn't necessary in the Senate, I think. But he's he's been a football coach at Ole Miss, Auburn, Texas Tech, and the University of Cincinnati. And then after that, he was sued for his involvement in investment funds. And then he decided to move back to Florida. I mean, move back to Alabama to run for Senate in 2018. So, like, nowhere did he indicate that Senate was on his path. Right. So do you think, when I look at Alabama, I, I like you, am a big Roy Moore fan. You know, he is pro- he's a great prosecutor, has been a great senator. But do you, you know, Doug I don't Jones. Think, or Doug Jones. Oh, so sorry. Doug Jones. Um, wow. Um, do you think, because I think when we look at Alabama, there's no chance Joe Biden carries the state. Um, no. Do you think but like you said, do you think I there's think enough it's... ticket splitters in Alabama right now that will go into the voting booth, check Donald Trump, and then check Doug Jones? I think so. I think so. I think Doug Jones has proven himself that he's able to work for Alabama. Like, he's passed legislation that's not – nothing – progressive or anything that would turn away moderate Alabama voters. But um, I don't know. Ticket splitting is hard, and it's even harder in a deep red state like Alabama. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, Do you want to talk about the other state that you've been watching closely? And then I'll talk about some that I've been keeping my eye on. So Arizona is another interesting race. The seat up for grabs this year is former Senator John McCain's seat that was replaced or uh, had interim John Kissel um, appointed to. And now he retired and the Republican running is Martha McSally, who was appointed to fill Kissel's seat. Um, Very interesting two sets of people. Mark Kelly is the Democratic candidate. He was a combat pilot in the Gulf War. He was a space shuttle pilot. And he was, I didn't know this, the husband of Gabby Giffords, U.S. representative, who was shot in the head in an attempted assassination. So that's where he got his political start. And both of them worked together to form political action committees centered around gun control. And in deep red Arizona, Kelly, as of July 26th, is at 53% versus Martha McSally's 41%. So just like this was John McCain's seat and now it's trending blue by a long by a large large margin is just wild yeah yeah and you might have mentioned this but Martha McSally unsuccessfully campaigned for the United States Senate in 2018 against Democrat Kirsten Sinema so Arizona has shown us at least in midterm elections that they're willing to vote for Democrats. You know, it might be different in a year where Trump is on the ballot, but Martha McSally was unsuccessful in a race uh, two years ago, which is, you know, I think telling. 
uh, again, that she was appointed to that seat was surprising to me. Uh, there's a Republican governor in Arizona, and I think it was an interesting choice to, when you had an open Senate seat, you pick someone who the voters had already rejected. Um, I just think that was a very interesting political choice there, and it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, it's not like on paper, Martha McSally is like not suited. She was the first woman to fly in combat and to command a fighter squadron. So like she has like merits. She sued the DOD about U.S. service members having to wear full body coverings while traveling off base in Saudi Arabia. And she won. So like she was able to, like she was popular and those are merits that would make people popular. But since Trump got elected, she's aligned herself very closely with him. And I think that is a reflection of how bad she's doing in the polls. Yeah, I see that because, you know, John McCain was in the Senate for so long and ran for president under the label of being a, a maverick. And that doesn't really fit the bill of being glued to the president, um, even when maybe it's against your state's best interest. You know, Arizona's had, you know, a horrible time with COVID-19. And, you know, maybe if she would kind of step out and be a little more independent, her campaign would, would at least statistically be being a little bit more successful right now. Um, but two races that I've been paying attention to, which one of which is just not a typical race that Democrats are talking about, is uh, in Alaska. They've got their uh, sitting Senator, Dan Sullivan, is up for re-election this year against an independent candidate, Al Gross. And uh, Mr. Gross is endorsed by uh, the Democratic Party and he, you know, is endorsed by a lot of organizations that are aligned with the party, uh, but he's just running under an independent label, um, whatever you can think about that, how you will. Um, and so just a little bit of biography. Gross is a former surgeon and a former commercial fisherman. Those are two, two jobs that don't typically go together here in the continental United States, at least. Um, and in one of his campaign videos, he, tells the audience that he once killed a grizzly bear in self-defense because it, quote, snuck up on him. That I'm, just happens in Alaska. Yeah, I think a lot of Alaskans probably have that same story, so maybe that's something mm -hmm. relatable. Um, but then the incumbent Republican, Dan Sullivan, he's the former attorney general under Governor Sarah Palin, and he was appointed to be the commissioner of the Alaska Department of Natural Resources, again, under Governor Sarah Palin. And then during the Bush administration, he was an assistant secretary of state under Condoleezza Rice. So he, I mean, Dan Sullivan, he has his biography. Governing is, you know, in his background, whatever. Um, but, but I'm really watching this. And one thing that makes it interesting is that polling in Alaska is like notoriously difficult. And I, I don't know why that is. Um, it's so big. It's a big state, a lot of, I don't know, I'm sure a lot of people just like maybe don't have landline phones, which is how a lot of polling is done. Um, but I'm, I'm keeping my eye on it. And if Al Gross were to be successful, he would be the third independent to join the United States Senate as it is now. And he would, of course, uh, caucus with the Democrats. And so he would join Senators Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Angus King of Maine. So you'd have some, you know, a little trio of independents in the Senate, which I think would be really cool. Um, and then on the presidential race in Alaska, 
the po- they seem to be able to do better polling for the presidential race than the Senate race, which I don't understand. But uh, Joe Biden has proven to be really competitive in Alaska, which is surprising considering I think Obama lost it by something like 20 points in 2012. So that's that would be wild. Alaska has three electoral votes. Um, so if Joe Biden pulls it off, he'll be three votes up, um, which which really could make the difference. I'm not going to say Alaska's our, our swing state, but but it, I'd never say never. Well, Alaska just has a curious relationship with traditional electoral politics. Is the current Senator Murkowski? Yes. She won, she lost the Republican nomination, then won the seat in a write-in campaign, which is yes. just unheard yeah. of. Convincing a majority of voters to write out the last name Murkowski correctly on a ballot was quite a feat of political aptitude, I would say. That's, I mean, yeah, that's, that's a really good point about Alaska. And then just quickly, my other race is the race in North Carolina, where the junior senator, Tom Tillis, who is a Republican, is up for re-election against Democrat Cal Cunningham. Uh, average polling right now has Cunningham up by 6.2 points. Um, so that's promising for, for the Cunningham campaign. Uh, Mr. Cunningham is a former state senator, an army reservist, and attorney. Uh, he has a Bachelor of Arts and a JD from UNC Chapel Hill, so home state educated, but also a master's in public policy and public administration from the London School of Economics, uh, which I found to be quite impressive. And then Tom Tillis uh, was first elected in 2015 after serving as the speaker of the North Carolina House of Representatives. And one thing that has kind of rocked the Tillis campaign recently is a statement he made earlier in July uh, where he suggested that Hispanic populations in the United States were suffering from higher rates of COVID-19 because they weren't practicing social distancing or masking. And um, critics quickly jumped on that because Hispanics, of course, make up a large uh, proportion of our essential workers, um, agriculture fields, transportation. Uh, and so I think that is just a really, a big misstep for him to say. And, you know, yeah, it just doesn't, that's not something you ever should say, but especially when you're a hundred days from voters deciding whether or not they want to keep you. Um, and I've mentioned this to you before, but I really think that North Carolina is going to be our bellwether state in 2020. They also have a governor's race where Roy Cooper is seeking re-election. He's a Democrat against his own lieutenant governor, who is a Republican. And it's looking like Cooper's going to win that race uh, as of now. And the race between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in North Carolina is also competitive. Uh, but Joe Biden is currently leading by about seven points in the most recent poll. And again, like with what we talked about Michigan, it's really hard for me to see an electoral map where Donald Trump loses North Carolina, but wins the presidency. It's, it's possible, but I just don't see it happening. What are, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think you're probably right. I wouldn't consider North Carolina a bellwether state in normal elections. But I think the trends we're seeing with a competitive Senate race, a Democrat in the governorship, I think we're seeing it trend in the direction Virginia was a couple years ago, moving towards not a not just a purple state, but a blue state. It may not happen this election, but I think in 2024, 2028, I think those will be, we'll see North Carolina as a blue state. 
yeah, I'm not quite so optimistic as you have seeing it as a wholly blue state. Uh, the last uh, time North Carolina voted for a Democrat for president was in 2008, and Barack Obama carried the state by about 14,000 votes, which is the slimmest of margins uh, at that level. So that was kind of interesting to read about. Um, but yeah, so those are Alaska, North Carolina, and then you had uh, Alabama and what was your other state? Arizona. Arizona, of course. So we, we've covered states all across the map. And now I want to get your thoughts on the Tennessee Senate race. We have an open seat because Lamar Alexander is, of course, retiring. So I want, I want you to talk a little bit about your thoughts on the ongoing Republican primary for that Senate seat. I think it is just very fascinating to see two men clamor over the love for the president. Right now we have Manny Sethi, who was a Vanderbilt trauma surgeon, I think, and Bill Haggerty, former U.S. ambassador to Japan under Donald Trump. Haggerty has officially received the Trump endorsement even before he started, he, even before he started, even before he announced his campaign. Like Trump endorsed him to run and then he quit his ambassadorship so he could come back and run, which is funny. But if you see any of their ads, which looking at local TV, they're everywhere, you'd think that both men have been endorsed by the president. Yeah, that's right. It's it's such an interesting race to watch, especially because we're both kind of looking from the outside in. Um, mm -hmm. One thing, and just like a question for you, does it matter? I think there's no discernible difference between a Sethi Senate win and a Haggerty Senate win. They both seem to be lockstep in line with the president and his record and how they'll vote for his agenda items. I I don't know. I, if I was voting for Haggerty or Sethi, like it wouldn't matter. I think they both implement the agenda of the president without yeah. question. Yeah, and it's been interesting for me to see different members of the Senate um, Republican caucus kind of flock to Tennessee to campaign for their chosen candidate. So you've got Tennessee's other Senator, Marsha Blackburn, campaigning with Haggerty. But then I think you have like Ted Cruz coming uh, to campaign with Sethi. I think I have that right. Um, Which is just funny. Like, what, do, what does Ted Cruz gain by siding with either of these people? Yeah. Like, it, yeah. it won't matter is the I, thing. Like, yeah. I bet either Haggerty or Sethi will, would, would still go down and, and eat lunch with Ted Cruz in the Senate. You know, I don't think he's going to have any enemies out of either one of these candidates. Uh, but no. one thing, just in the research for this segment, I was looking, and apparently Haggerty has referred to Joe Biden as, quote, Beijing Biden, and that's per the Daily Memphian. Once again, why? What, I mean, what does, does Haggerty think that Tennessee's going to vote for Joe Biden? Or does he think I, he has this national audience? I don't, I don't get it. I don't. I think he's just sort of parroting what the president says. And since Donald Trump is still largely popular in Tennessee, I think it, it doesn't hurt him at all. Yeah. And it may not help him that much either, but it's just a reflection of the candidate he's chosen to align himself with. Yeah, I, I just think that's a, a sad indictment of Tennessee politics right now. That's not the state or the people that, that I know. You know, I mean, I know people who will go vote for them, but... I don't know. It just feels like we can do better as a state. Um, but maybe it'll take finishing this race to the bottom for us to figure that out. But Yeah. 
sad. It is. Um, you want to move on to everyone's favorite topic right now, COVID-19? Absolutely. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> so again, if you haven't heard, there is a pandemic happening and the same year of the presidential election race. And it's called COVID-19. And it's everywhere, believe it or not. Um, so it has had, I think, an impact on electoral politics in the United States, just as a broad state. Would you agree? I would, yeah. Yeah, I think I think if we were sitting here August 1st, we're recording this August 1st, by the way, you'll be listening a couple days later. Um, I think the polling, everything would just be so different right now if, if COVID were not a factor. Um, definitely, yep. definitely an impact. So what's happening? What's, what's been done? Um, there's been two, there's been one or two plans passed in Congress for this. There's been one passed by the House and Senate into law and one passed just by the House. Yeah, and I think prior, I think prior to the big one, there were like one or two like very small packages that kind of aligned with the Fed injecting a lot of money into the economy. But, but yes, there's been basically one major package that of course people saw stimulus checks from and that's, you know, the, as close as a lot of people will get to that kind of legislation. But it also had mm-hmm. the small business loans, the paycheck protection program, stuff like that. Um, and this weekend, the $600 weekly unemployment payments have elapsed without any legislative fix. But there is a Democratic plan and there is a Republican plan. As you expect, not a lot of, not a lot of um, common ground between the two. Um, what is interesting, I think, just looking at it from reading from the Daily Memphian is the one point, let me get this right, the $915 billion the Democratic plan um, allocates for state and local government aid. I think that's very important because I know there was a debate in Tennessee and in Memphis in general about how they would have to use the CARES funding to fill budget holes, but it wasn't specifically allocated for that reason. So they had to do like a hiring freeze in Memphis and Governor Lee was looking to how to work around that. So I think as important as the other stuff is, like the government aid is extremely important in helping make sure our governments can still function properly on a local level. And this is in comparison to the Republican plan, which allocates no extra money to state and local governments. Yeah, I have a couple points on what you just said that I would like to just express. I think one thing that everyone needs to just be really clear about is that uh, on Friday, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell decided it was time to pack up and go home so the members could have a nice long weekend. Um, Of course, they're still being paid. And the House of Representatives is still in session. They're staying in D.C. over the weekend. I think on Saturday, the day we're recording, uh, Speaker Pelosi, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer from the Senate, we're going to meet with Treasury Secretary and the White House Chief of Staff to try to figure out uh, the best way and the best, I guess, compromise to help Americans. But Mitch McConnell chose, it's completely his choice, to pack it up and go home. And I, I just don't want anyone to be confused about that fact, is that in a time of crisis, Mitch McConnell packed up and went home. 
And, uh, you know, maybe he had a campaign fundraiser to go to, but I just found that to be really insulting. Um, I don't know. And, and then again, on your more substantive point, uh, the aid to state and local governments is really important. That's money, uh, money from states and localities. That's what pays teachers, firefighters, uh, public health, just so many really important things. And then again, on your point, with Shelby County having hiring freezes uh, on a state level, why, why does Bill Lee not dip into the, the rainy day fund? That Tennessee has. We, we have a constitutional amendment that requires us to run a budget surplus. Um, it feels like a rainy day um, with, with the GDP this quarter down, I think about 30%. It feels like time to use that money. Considering that there's $4 billion in our rainy day fund and they drew on almost none of that when they met for their special legislative session in June. I don't know. I don't know. Again, to try and parse together some sort of coherent, helpful strategy from what they've displayed is just, it's not, there is none. Like he, the legislation, the Tennessee legislature cut teacher pay and gave the governor a pay raise. Where, where does that, I, I'm confused between all of that. Yeah. Is the it, optics of that is off. Well, it should offend anyone who's ever paid a cent of tax in the state of Tennessee. Um, and the hand-wringing I see from lawmakers about how we will pay for this or how we should be conservative in the amount of money we put in, I would just say that they passed $3.2 trillion in spending and we still had double-digit unemployment and a 30% drop in GDP. Like, we're not spending enough. It's not should we spend less like there are deficits and i don't know i don't see how spending less money and giving payroll tax cuts will solve this problem yeah i i agree and and one thing that's in the republican plan that i think we really need to point out is liability protections for businesses um it it just doesn't seem like it should be a priority that if this big corporation makes me come to work that if I get sick because they made me come to work, I don't have the right to sue them. That just doesn't, it doesn't sit right with me uh, that, that the big focus of the GOP caucus in the Senate and the House is protecting big business at the expense of workers. It, I mean, it's not surprising, but it, it amazes me every time. It, I don't know. Like, you, yes, if it's unsafe for you to go to work, you shouldn't, you should have the ability to sue your employer. Like yeah. that's, that's it. Like unprecedented times we face and just the lack of leadership from Congress and from the white house is not surprising, but you would have thought, and I hopefully thought that maybe a crisis would whip them into shape. And sadly they did not. Yeah. Um, uh, did you want to mention anything about the vaccine trial? that there's been news about in the last couple of weeks? So just this week, maybe yesterday, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the NIH, um, said he was cautiously optimistic that there would be a trial ready at the end of this year or early of 2021. And that's in part because Moderna, a bio, I don't know, pharmaceutical company, has implemented phase three trials 
for their coronavirus vaccine, which is very exciting on a scientific level because it's the first time that this type of vaccine has been put into production at all, which they take the messenger RNA of the virus and use it to code your body to make an immune response, if I read it correctly. As you said, I'm not a STEM yeah. major. But we'll have to get we'll have to get somebody that knows what yeah. any of those words mean to come explain to everybody. Uh, but scientifically, <laughs> I think it's exciting. Yeah, and it's proved safe so far in their previous two trials. Yeah, so and I phase think three. The, yeah, I think with safety, I think the biggest risk of a vaccine like this is that it won't work. I, you know, yeah. you're not going to grow a third arm from no. from some vaccine like this. Yeah. But, okay. Well, that's that's a good update. Um, We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk about some recent federal actions in Portland that the federal government has been involved in, and uh, we're going to evaluate some of Joe Biden's choices for vice president. All right, Connor. I think the last two things we have to talk about are Portland and the vice presidential selection process. So just to give listeners a little bit of background, uh, since early July, the Trump administration has maintained a federal law enforcement presence in Portland, Oregon. Um, These federal officers, uh, it's really unclear what department they belong to. They're not wearing badge numbers, last names, any kind of identifying markers. And once people started asking questions of, you know, who are these people in my city, uh, the administration came out, I think Homeland Security said, you know, they're, they're there to protect federal property. And, you know, that, that sounds great until you get reports on the ground that they are, you know, throwing people into vans, you know, they're nowhere near federal property. Um, You know, I understand needing to protect federal property and federal courthouses, whatever, those things have to function. but the, you know, the, tr- the forces were not there under invitation from the mayor or governor. It's just not something that has happened uh, under other presidents. I just, I mean, what, do you, what is your take? Why, why does Donald Trump think that he needs to interject himself into law enforcement in a particular state? And just well, now, the, the governor of Oregon and the mayor of Portland are both Democrats. Well, I don't think it's actually to protect any federal property, I think it's because as the Trump, someone in the Trump administration admitted, it was to get viral content to put on ads showing that his message of a lawless America is true by having these officers, just their presence invokes a response from protesters and just the people in Portland who don't think there should be unmarked federal officers in their city and rightfully so they protest that like he's doing exactly what he said he'd do he's just saying the quiet part loudly yeah i agree and i think one thing that's really interesting is just in the last few days um i guess at the end of last week the federal government announced that the the forces would be leaving portland um and then all of a sudden the protests were peaceful and the only i mean the, the only conclusion you can draw from that is that the presence of federal forces in an American city were agitating violence. I, <laughs> it seems to me that, that law enforcement in Portland is plenty capable of trying to keep protesters safe because that's what it needs to be about is keeping 
peaceful protesters safe uh, in this, you know, very important time of a racial reckoning and people being allowed to exercise their First Amendment rights. It just should not sit well with anyone who, you know, is, is you know, bought in in any way to the American ideals that, that expression is good. You know, the, the federal government just doesn't have a mandate to engage in activity like this. And, and I hope, you know, I hope voters and everyone see that and, and carry that with them in the next hundred days. And this is not like solely an idea that ends with Donald Trump being replaced at the White House. I know Senator Tom Cotton suggested that, of Arkansas, suggested that Trump could invoke the Insurrection Act and deploy military forces against U.S. citizens, which to have a United States senator advocating for that, a Republican United States senator advocating for that, when an argument from the right is that people need arms to protect themselves from an overzealous federal government is another example of the hypocrisy that we live in. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And Tom Cotton is, of course, seen as a rising star in that party. And it's it's frightening to think about if that's the direction that the policies of the Republican Party, if that's where they're headed. Um, it really does just highlight the stakes of the upcoming election. And there really are it's a binary choice of what you think America should look like and what you think American ideals are. Yep. So moving on, I think we have some interesting takes on who Vice President Biden's vice president should be. Do you want to share your thoughts on that? Yeah. So just some more background for our listeners in case you're not um, as glued to all this stuff as me and Connor are. Um, Joe Biden has kind of skipped around on a date when he's going to announce his vice president. The initial deadline was August 1st. Um, That I can tell you, we do not have a pick. And then last week he said, oh, it'll be next week. Uh, And then now sources have said on Friday, on July 31st, that the Biden campaign is going to wait until the second week of August to announce the pick. So it it seems like maybe Joe Biden doesn't know who his vice president's going to be, which is exciting, I guess. Um, But right now, I am really big into the idea of either Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts or Susan Rice becoming the next vice president. Um, Elizabeth Warren, for obvious reasons, uh, you know, she ran for president. Everyone knows about her. You know, if you like her ideas, great. If you don't, that's fine. I do. I think she'd be effective, uh, really smart, uh, gets along with Joe Biden well, even though she disagrees with him. And then Susan Rice also, who some of our listeners probably haven't heard as much about. She was uh, ambassador to the United Nations under President Obama. And then she was his national security advisor. Um, And then in the Clinton administration, she was, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, like, I think assistant secretary of state for african affairs and i think she was about 32 when she had that job so she was a very young assistant secretary of state which is just really impressive um she has no electoral experience so that's maybe a downside but she and biden have a great working relationship they worked together for eight years in the obama biden administration um so i'm watching those two women and of course one thing we know is that it will be a woman which is uh Incredibly exciting for me. I know you're excited. I think a lot of people are really excited. I think 
whoever it is is going to bring a lot of fresh energy to the ticket and just some excitement to the base of the Democratic Party, which is women voters, especially black women voters. Um, and that's really important to do. So who, who are you looking at? I'm going to go out on a limb. I think Susan Rice would be an excellent vice presidential nominee. I think she would be able to have a very good working relationship with Biden. He could say to her, hey, Susan, Susie, maybe, I don't know how close <laughs> they are, say, listen, we need to repair America's standing abroad. You know how to do that, perhaps more so than anyone else in, the, in America right now. So she would be able to go out, get our foreign reputation back while President Biden would be able to work on ending the coronavirus crisis and the possible economic depression that we're in. So I think they'd be a really good working relationship. And I think her not having electoral experience is actually a benefit. I think perhaps that would help force new up-and-comers in the Democratic Party to run for president in 2024, especially if she has no ambition of running for president. I think that would leave the two of them to work solely on fixing just the disaster we live in. Yeah. And I think that'd, I th be, that'd be healthy. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think a lot of this will depend on information that none of us have. If, and that's if Joe Biden, in his mind, is thinking, if I win, I'm going to stay for one term. If he's already made that decision, I think that's going to have a huge effect on who he picks. And, but if he thinks he's going to do two terms, which I'm all for, whatever. I think let's just get through 2020, then we'll talk about it. Um, you know, one name we didn't mention is Kamala Harris, who is, you know, obviously very harmless. And then one kind of person who I hadn't heard of until a few weeks ago, and that's Congresswoman Karen Bass from California. Um, she's the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, a very accomplished legislator. Uh, I think she was the speaker of the California State House, which is a massive job. California is a massive state. Um, and one thing, I just don't want to sweep over the historic nature of this. You know, we've had two women on a presidential ticket as vice president. You know, in our past, you had uh, Geraldine Ferraro and then Sarah Palin. Uh, and then, of course, Hillary Clinton headed the ticket four years ago. But um, just looking at the field that Joe Biden has to pick from, I have a quote from uh, Valerie Jarrett, who is a very close friend and advisor to the Obama family. And she said, uh, there has not been another time in our nation's history where a nominee of either party has announced that several well-qualified women, including women of color, are under serious consideration. And she goes on to say, he has an embarrassment of riches from which to choose, and that is wonderful. Um, I just think that's so true. Um, mm -hmm. It's, yeah, I think whoever he picks of the names that we've talked about, maybe it's a name we haven't talked about, is just going to be a really exciting ticket um, and, and who better than a former vice president to pick a vice president, you know, he and he yeah. and president Obama had a great relationship. Um, so, so I'm excited about it. I know it's hard to be excited about a lot of things right now, but I'm really excited about uh, who he's going to pick and the energy that she can bring to the ticket. Like vice president Biden said, he sees himself as a bridge to the next generation of Democratic Party leaders. And I think that'll be represented. And not only he chooses for his vice president, but also who he appoints to the cabinet as well, which I hope would be younger than him. But also there's plenty of people qualified. 
I think Elizabeth Warren, if she doesn't get VP, would be an excellent Treasury Secretary, and I will die on that hill. Yeah. But also, I wanted to say my off-kilter VP pick for Joe Biden should be Tammy Duckworth. I just want to get that out there. So when VP Duckworth <laughs> is sworn in, I will not look crazy. Because as a veteran of the Iraq war, she is the first woman of, she's a double amputee. So she's the first woman of double amputee to be like to the Senate. She's the first woman to give birth while in Senate. So like she, she's a tough cookie and like, she's extremely well qualified. And I don't see how you could run any negative ad against her. And I think that would be a plus too. So Tammy Duckworth. When she gets it, you'll know I'm right. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. She also fills President Obama's old Senate seat, so maybe that's a lucky seat that gets you straight to the White House. Um, but I think that's all we have, Connor. Um, thank you so much to everyone who stuck with us through this first episode of The Citizen's Guide. Um, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. We're up now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, some other podcast apps that I haven't heard of, like Pocket Casts. Um, and then, of course, you can listen just on Anchor, which is where all of our like social media links will take you. Um, but be sure to tune in next week for the second episode of The Citizen's Guide. Uh, Connor, do you have anything to send us off on? Oh, no, the outpouring of support has been incredible, and I'm really appreciative of it, and I hope you all enjoy it.